Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Well, we're going, we don't need Rose. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, are you excited to travel to some uh, perhaps dark and mysterious places tonight with our movie endings? By grab Thor's hammer, I am indeed, Mike. Thanks for asking. All right. Well, why don't you tell people then, I think some, some fans obviously will know what mo- one of the movies we're doing, but why don't you go ahead and fill people in on what we're going to be talking about tonight? Yes, we will be giving after the endings to the wonderfully funny and, well, terrific Galaxy Quest. But before that, we will be going uh, down a river in a canoe for Deliverance. Well, just just to be clear, you and I will not be traveling in those canoes. No, certainly not. Good, good thing for that. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, and uh, also we'll be doing our top 10 films of 1962. Yes, and we're going to have a special guest join us for our mini feature tonight. We have teenage movie critic Jackson Murphy, also known as Lights Camera Jackson. He's doing a charity initiative involving podcasts, and of course we wanted to help him out. So he's going to come on in a little bit. We're going to talk to him about what it's like to be a teenage movie critic, and he's going to help us out with a fun mini feature that we've come up with for tonight's episode so stick around for that i don't know why i said stick around for that as if we're like on like live radio yeah so we just gotta be right back after this break (laughs) right right exactly okay i'll be talking to jackson in a bit but mike do you want to take us through deliverance well i i really don't actually but (laughs) but uh i kind of have to so I, i guess i will Okay, Deliverance, a 1972 film directed by John Borman, starring Burt Reynolds, John Voight, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. And in it, four businessmen from Atlanta, Georgia, head out into what is now known as Deliverance Country to canoe down a river in the remote wilds of Georgia. Well, it all sounds fun so far. Yeah, so far it's like a happy vacation movie. <laughs> While traveling to the river, they meet some locals who are unimpressed with the the city folk, and one of the men gets into one of the one of our heroes, if you will, gets into a banjo duet with the local country boy. On the river, the foursome gets separated in their two canoes. Bobby and Ed, played by Ned Beatty and John Voigt, respectively, encounter a pair of local men, one of whom has a shotgun. The group argues, and the locals tie Ed to a tree and sexually assault Bobby. Lewis, played by Burt Reynolds, hears the commotion and kills the man assaulting Bobby with his bow and arrow, while the other man escapes. They decide to bury the body and continue on the trip, as they don't think the authorities will believe them, and they feel like they're going to be jailed for murder. They continue downriver, but they hit the rapids, and during the trip, Drew, played by Ronnie Cox, starts to act strange and falls in the water. They wash up on the rocks, and Lewis breaks his leg. Lewis claims that Drew was shot. So Ed, that's Burt Reynolds, because I know there's a lot of names I'm throwing at you, (laughs) climbs up and hides with his bow and arrow, waiting for the hunter. When the hunter arrives the next morning, Ed shoots him and manages to kill him, injuring himself in the process. They weigh down the bodies and continue downriver. Eventually, they reach a small town and make up a story about Drew's death being an accident. The sheriff doesn't believe them, but he can't arrest them because he has no proof, so he tells them to leave and never come back, which they happily do, and they make a pact never to speak of the events of the weekend again. Uh That's uh, yeah, you got it all there. Yeah, well, you know, it's not the most plot-heavy film in the world, but obviously, yeah. it was um, made a big impact when it came out. I think for for obvious reasons, uh, and it is sort of you know even some thirty years later. I mean, you, you say the word deliverance, and people automatically think of banjos. Yeah, and, it's crazy, isn't and, it? You know, and squeal like a pig. Had a big impact, and it's yeah, it's not the most fun film to watch. No, it's yeah, you know, I mean, it's a good film for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a very good I, film. Yeah. It, it is a film that I I can say that I really have an appreciation for, uh, but it's not the kind of thing you pop out on a Friday night with your friends, you know, make some popcorn, have some drinks, you know, gather around the TV. Everyone, deliverance is on. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's definitely more of a film that you watch, you know, when when you're in the mood to go to some some dark places. Yes, yes. All right, so Phil, why don't you uh, kick things off and give us your day after? Okay, then my day after. Ed can't sleep. He feels guilty for what he did. They lost good friends and did terrible things to survive. Uh, Lewis keeps acting like it wasn't that bad. But Ed can see when when they meet up. Ed can see in his eyes that he is scared. Bobby worries Ed the most. He went through the worst experience. Yeah, he seems to be acting like nothing happened. 
and that's my day after. Well, I think we may have some similarities in our mm-hmm. in our day afters here, Phil, or in our endings overall. Yeah, yeah. So for my day after, the the three survivors return home, but they don't quite know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to just go back to nine to five lives after what they've been through. Bobby gets home and starts drinking heavily, traumatized by what happened to him. Ed sinks into a deep depression, crushed by the weight of the knowledge that he was helpless to come to Bobby's aid when he was tied to the tree. Lewis feels no guilt over having killed two men since he knows that he saved all their lives. However, he still finds himself shaken by the incident. None of the men have made it out of the weekend unscathed. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Let's see where they go from here. How about your immediate aftermath? Okay, my immediate aftermath. Ed keeps having the same dream, the hand rising from the river, and a f- but it uh, gradually changes over time. And uh, he starts seeing a figure slowly walking towards him in his nightmare. He begins to write, though, when he can't sleep. And as he can't sleep most nights, he's writing all the time. But he doesn't write of the actual events, just the horror and emotions that they went through. He pours it all out onto the page. Uh, Lewis ends up getting drunk more and more. He gets into more fights and lets his anger control him. What what he went through on that weekend is just gnawing away at his soul. Bobby has disappeared. Ed tries to find him, but work says he he left one day and never came back. And his apartment is empty. And that's my immediate aftermath. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Right. What what have you got for yours? Okay. Well, in the following months, each of the men begin to change. Bobby refuses to go to therapy because he can't bring himself to tell anyone what happened to him. Ed, however, does go to therapy to deal with his depression. He tells his therapist what happened to him and Bobby, but he leaves out the part about killing their two assailants. His therapist encourages him to go to the authorities, but Ed knows that they can't do that. Lewis, however, finds that he can't return to his businessman life, and so he liquidates all of his assets. He sells his house and his car and all of his stock portfolios, and he uses the money to buy a warehouse, a van, and a stockpile of weapons. Lewis is about to embark on a mission. Dun-dun-dun. Okay. Yeah. Oh, very good. How about, all right, so uh, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap this up then. Bring us home for your long term. Okay, my long term. Uh, over the, the intervening time, Ed has become a successful horror writer. He still has nightmares, and they f- usually feature a drowned corpse walking towards him, but he channels it all into his work. Lewis ended up almost dying after a fight. This was the wake-up call he needed. He quits drinking and begins to put his life back together. And to do that, he begins trying to track down Bobby. After months of searching, he eventually finds him, and finds him living a few states away. Turns out Bobby had had a huge breakdown, and left everything of his old life behind, and started afresh. He's glad to see Lewis, they chat for a while, but when it's, it's over, he asks, he asks Lewis to never come back. Many months later, Ed awakes with a start. He's not had a nightmare for the past couple of nights, although the last one he, he had saw the figure closer than ever, reaching out to him. He is startled by a loud knocking at the door, and that's mine. Oh, I like it. <laughs> uh, very nice. A little, yeah. little supernatural turn at the end there. Well, it's or, or Or not. I mean, you know, the I guess it's... Right, right. <laughs> I guess that's up to to you, the listener, to decide. Yes. I thought to keep it simple, but what's uh, what's your long term? All right, well, you know, uh, you usually like to be the one to take things on a little on the darker side, so I thought tonight it would be my turn. Oh, okay then. So, um, Bring it. All right. Well, unable to deal with the trauma, sadly, Bobby takes his own life. At his funeral, Ed gives the eulogy, but Lewis doesn't show up. Ed leaves his salesman job and goes to work at a nonprofit, helping to run a center for victims who have been traumatized by violent crime. Of the three survivors, he's the only one to find peace, finding a calling in life that allows him to exercise his demons and learn true happiness by helping other people. Lewis, however, begins to hunt criminals in the night. Using police short-band radios to track down crimes as they occur, Lewis looks for opportunities to beat the cops to a crime scene and dispatch the criminals with the ultimate finality. He begins to build an intelligence network and starts hunting criminals in more subtle ways, using his bow and arrow to take out suspected murderers, rapists, and mob bosses. For years, he has a one-man war on crime. Eventually, after a mission goes bad, Lewis gets shot by a policeman. He manages to escape, but he ends up in an alley, slowly dying. When a young boy happens upon him, he sees Lewis. The blood on his shirt has stained it in the shape of a skull. Lewis gives the boy his bow and tells him to do good, and then dies. Young Frank Castle looks down at the body below him and, frightened, drops the bow and runs back to his family who are vacationing in Georgia. Oh, I like and it. And that's, that's the end of my ending, I guess. Very good, yeah. <laughs> A small Thank incident you. in Frank Castle's young life, which would be bouncing around until yeah. his life went to hell as well. 
That's kind of what I was thinking. You yeah, know, I was yeah. like, I was kind of toying with it, and I was like, well, I don't think you know. And we know that the Punisher's you know origin is pretty well established. Yeah, yeah. It's not you know, but I kind of thought that like having this sort of traumatic memory in his past, you know, yeah, when, yeah. when the time came, would sort of inform him a little bit. You know, maybe even in the subconscious, because maybe he blocks it out. But yeah, I thought yeah. it was kind of nice. a, I like a that. neat little thing. So thanks. thanks. I really like that. Very good. All right. Well, that's deliverance, and that was super cheerful. So why don't we yeah. quickly move on oh, to let's, a... let's just we will just say though, if you haven't seen the film, it is it is well worth seeing because it is very well made and there's good moments. Right, and it's not that dark. I mean, yeah. you know, bad things happen to it, but they don't they don't dwell on it. You know, it yeah. is more of a sort of kind of an action film, I guess. I mean, I don't know that that's entirely right, but it's like a dramatic action film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, like you said, it is worth watching. It is a good film. They don't dwell on the, the you know, the horrible moments. So it's not like it's just dreary and misery the whole time. Yeah. It's a very riveting kind of thriller. But, you know, it's definitely not... Uh, don't watch it, like, right after you watch Mary Poppins or something like that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or maybe watch Mary Poppins afterwards yeah, to sort of, you know, cleanse the, the palate. Yeah. <laughs> So, Phil, do you have any trivia you can deliver to us? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I saw what you did there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've got a few bits. The production wasn't insured as they wanted to save as much money as they could. Uh, so the cast ended up doing quite a few of their own stunts. Uh, John Voigt climbed the cliff. Um, Bert Reynolds ended up going down the river in a canoe for one scene and ended up breaking his coccyx. So... Well, it didn't have the best of luck there, but yeah, that seems like a bad idea to to film yeah. a movie yeah. where you're going to be on a river and climbing mountains and not have insurance. You know, they saved a lot of money. Yeah, but like you know, it's one thing if it's like a Judd Apatow film, you know, where it's a bunch of people sitting around talking, but like here you are in like the wilds, like climbing mountains. Like, nah, who needs insurance? Uh, it's crazy, isn't it? uh, but also Ned Beatty, he was the only one out of the cast, the main cast, which ha who had any canoeing experience. Interesting. It was also his film debut. Billy Redden, he was the guy who played the the hillbilly, the guy playing the banjo. Mm -hmm. He couldn't actually play the banjo, so they got another kid who could play it to put his arms through behind him and play the banjo that way. You, which makes you wonder, why didn't they just give that kid who could play the banjo the the part? It's probably the way the guy, Billy Redden, had that face, didn't he? Just oh, yeah. Bit, yeah, like, he does have that. Like... And he also turned up in uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish years later. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. That. And last little bit, actors who were considered for the roles of the Ed and Lewis, who were the... Uh, John Voight and Bert Reynolds' characters. But these, these actors were considered for those roles. Uh, Lee Marvin, Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Gene Hackman, Henry Fonda, James Stewart, Charlton Heston, and Steve McQueen. And they either couldn't do it because of too expensive or they were doing other things or they just didn't want to do it. But they're, all of them are amazing actors. So Oh, sure. Yeah. It was all but, you know, quality the all the way. With, right. The problem with putting Lee Marvin in, though, is he would have just killed everybody right from the start. Yeah, He's such yeah. a badass. And it would, the movie would have been over way too I think early, that's so. it. But I think it was him. It was him or it was either Marvin or Brando who said, uh, we're too old to do this. You'll have to get someone else. You'd be hmm, better to get somebody else doing it. But right, right. Imagine James Stewart being in the film. That would be it. That could have been. Yeah, that that would have been. It, I, yeah, it would have been a very different movie for mm. sure. You know, for sure. But I'm sure it would have been amazing if yeah, it was. Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, that's Deliverance then. So uh, why don't we uh, why don't we cleanse our palate then by moving on to a a much uh, more lighthearted film? And I'm gonna guess our endings maybe will will go in that direction a little bit too but although we never know especially with you <laughs> yeah 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 we'll see <laughs> uh so uh so phil why don't you take us through the events of galaxy quest okay i will do uh, there's a few names it's quite a big cast and they have character names and also the names of the character they're playing it within the galaxy quest show so hopefully it won't be too confusing although i think i've confused myself with that description <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll do our best to follow along. It can't be any more confusing than you know Ed, Bobby, Lewis, and whatever. Because I was even yeah. when I was doing my own endings. I was like, now wait, which one is this again? You know, so okay. So we have the the cast of Galaxy Quest, uh, which was once a very successful sci-fi show. Uh, with the crew flew the NSCA protector. I'll just go through the crew now. There was the captain Jason Nesmith, played by Tim Allen. The other cast was Alexander Dane, played by Alan Rickman who was the ship's alien science officer. There was Fred Kwan, played by Tony Shalhoub, as the chief engineer. Gwen DeMarco, played by Sigourney Weaver, as the computer officer. And Tommy Weber, who was Daryl Mitchell, who at the time of the original show was a, a child pilot. A bit like a Wesley Crusher kind of guy. Uh, but anyway, cheers later, and they now get by doing convention appearances, but none of them like doing them. Uh, Nesmith, which is Tim Allen, He's approached by a man called Mathazar, played by Enrico Colantani, who says he is a Thermian and asks for his help. Nesmith thinks it's, a, it's another fan event 
and he agrees. Turns out that the Thermians are aliens, and they think that the Galaxy Quest show is real. Nesmith, who wakes up from a hangover, is taken on board the spacecraft, not realising what's going on at first, and he asks eventually to go home. He's teleported back to Earth, and is blown away by what's happened and realises it's all real. He bumps into superfan Brandon, uh, played by Justin Long, and the working Thermian communicator that he'd been given is accidentally swapped with Brandon's replica, and that will come into play a bit later on. Uh, Nesmith convinces the rest of the crew, along with Guy Fleegman, played by Sam Rockwell, uh, he played uh, an unnamed crew member in one episode who ended up dying. Uh, they all get convinced to join the Thermians, and they end up being taken off into space on an exact working replica of the NSEA protector. They end up going up against a reptilian kind of alien guy called Saris, and it ends up, after various events and lots of funny moments going on, it ends up with Saris setting the protector to self-destruct. Using what they remember from the show, and with the help of Brandon and fans back on Earth, because they had the communicator, they managed to stop the self-destruct system. They also managed to disable Osiris' ship, but he beams on board and starts killing the crew. Nesmith ends up activating the ultimate weapon, the Amiga-13, which reverses time and gives him enough time to knock out Saris. The humans return home in the command module, which crashes into a fan convention back on Earth, and all the fans think it's real, and Saris... Saris ends up coming back with them. He wakes up, but Nesmith disintegrates him with an alien rifle in front of the crowd, and everybody's blown away. Nesmith has also convinced Mathazar that he is uh, good enough to command the Protector, so he's off in space doing that, and Galaxy Quest is revived as a new series with the original cast back on TV. And that's Galaxy Quest. Very nicely done. Thank you very much. And uh, much like Deliverance, if you haven't seen Galaxy Quest, I highly recommend oh, it. Oh, it's it, hilarious, yeah. It, it's not only a, a, you know, a pitch-perfect parody of Star Trek, but it's, it's a good movie on its own right, so that even if you're not a Star Trek fan or even if you're not familiar with the, the tropes of Star Trek, it's still really, really funny. Yeah, it does, and it's a great cast, Sam Rockwell in particular. Yeah, he's, he's terrific. Brilliant, because he just he doesn't want to. He thinks he's going to die like his character did. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, he's the red shirt. So, yeah, yeah. You know. Okay, then. So, uh, what have you got for the day after for the crew of the NSEA Protector? All right. Well, as we left the film, the cast had been brought back together for a new TV show, and of course, it's produced by Netflix. <laughs> for the second season premiere, the producers brought in the remaining cast members of the original Star Trek, a show that had been a huge influence on Galaxy Quest. While filming a scene where both crews beam down to a planet, a portal opens that creates a wormhole in the space-time continuum, and both crews are transported into space, where they land on a strange planet for real. And Alan Rickman's character sums it up nicely by saying, Not again. <laughs> And that's where we'll leave things for now. So how about you, Phil? How about your day after? Oh, very good. Okay, I've got uh, Galaxy Quest as a hit once more. Uh, there's a freshness to the acting and the storylines that mark it apart from the other series. Most interestingly, the cast provide the basic plot details for the show, with Fliegman also becoming one of the show's writers. They also use a select group of cameramen, and the shoot is always top secret. Turns out that they've been back in space on the protector. The cast were asked back by the Thermians to be the flagship of the new fleet. They agreed, and as it's actually quite peaceful up there in that sector, they decided to film it there. And it turns out it's an awful lot cheaper for the studio, so they don't ask any questions. <laughs> Makes sense. Yes. So that's, uh, that's my day after. Very nice. I like that. Okay, and what have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right, well, at first, the world seems deserted, so the two crews decide to explore, as there doesn't seem to be any method of returning them back to their home planet readily apparent. William Shatner and Jason Nesmith both try to take command, but Nesmith defers to the elder Shatner's experience. As they begin to scout the barren planet, more groups of people begin to appear in the vicinity. The crews realize that there are other versions of themselves. The Galaxy Quest crew is staring at themselves from 20 years ago, while the 1960s Star Trek cast appears as well. A moment later, the Chris Pine-led Kelvin continuity cast appears, as do the casts of Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Voyager, but not Star Trek Enterprise. Then, the cast of Battlestar Galactica, Firefly, Lost in Space, and I guess Space 1999, why not? Yeah, uh, yeah. They, all, they all show up, too. Bewildered, the dozens of cast members look at each other in shock. Suddenly, it dawns on young 1960s Shatner. It's a battle to the death, he yells. My God. Somebody wants us to fight each other. <laughs> <laughs> he turns to the sky and yells, well, we won't do it. Do you hear me? I do a terrible William Shatner, by the way, but that's My God. okay. Yeah. You'll have to find your playthings somewhere else. <laughs> There's silence for a moment, and then a voice comes from the heavens and begins to speak. Fight. Oh. And that's where we'll leave things. Oh, awesome. Sci-fi showdown. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right, so uh, how about your immediate aftermath, Phil? What do you got? Okay, I've got Mathasar, who's captain of the NSCA Protector 2. Because... That's quite the mouthful you know, got yeah. there. Is uh, on a routine patrol. They're trying to find people and planets to join their new union 
or alliance or coalition. You can't think of a decent name for it at the moment. But they are hailed by a ship. Not recognising it, they head off to help. When they arrive, people from the other ship transport over and quickly subdue Mathisar and the crew. However, he manages to send out a distress signal. He looks on in horror when he realises who has captured them. And that's my immediate aftermath. Ooh, another little cliffhanger there, Phil. All right, I'm, I'm anxious to see who it is. Well, you have to wait and see. But first, <laughs> we have your long term. All right. So, the long term, here we go. Fight, the voice says. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, fight, fight. No, you must be mistaken. An alien comes out from behind <laughs> a rock. My name is Anorak. I represent the Geekazed people of the planet Mother's <laughs> Basement 4. My people have been watching your adventures for decades. We've just recently perfected our tachyon deflector axionic chronoton power electrocapacitor. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This has allowed us to bring you all here from all over the galaxy and the timelines. We do not want you to battle. We just wanted to meet you. As he says this, thousands of other Geekazeds emerge from their underground caverns. So you mean this is all just one big fan convention, Nesmith says? Exactly, Anorak says, clapping with glee. Nesmith looks at Shatner, who looks at Patrick Stewart, who looks at the other Shatner. They all shrug. Well, okay, Nesmith says. The Geekazeds rejoice and spend the rest of the day overpaying for autographs and photo opportunities with the many cast members of their favorite shows. And that's the end. Oh, I like it. I so. like how you... you following the style of the thing yeah yeah oh brilliant yeah yeah you have, <laughs> the, you have people doing the show and then people doing the convention oh brilliant yeah i like that thanks like that a little have a little fun yeah. with that so although the names of the uh the aliens who did it you might have alienated some of our audience well you know <laughs> well you've alienated me thank you <laughs> i um i mean no no offense to people who live in their mother's basements it's just a it's just a tried and true sort of you know yeah. uh what's i'm looking it's for sh- it's shorthand isn't it it's short it's shorthand for for geekiness so i mean listen i lived at home for a long time so i i'm i'm not making fun of geeks they're my people geeks are my lifeblood you know so but i i just thought like you said it's kind of shorthand for geeky stuff so i threw it in there but no yeah. no offense was meant to anybody geeks rock that's right. That's I, cool I fly one. my geek flag high. I don't think I've made it any secret of this if oh, you've no, to the show all. before. <laughs> so, all right, Phil, why don't you bring it home then? Tell us how things end and who is this mysterious person we're waiting to see. After weeks of tracking down and chasing after Mathazana's crew, which turns out to have given the show some of its biggest ratings ever, they finally catch up with the Protector 2. They manage to speak to the hostile force and arrange to beam down to a nearby planet to discuss terms. On the planet, the crew of the Protector is shocked to see that the bad guys are duplicates of them. Hmm. Mathazar explains that it was a result of a failed genetic experiment they ran before recruiting the crew in the events of Galaxy Quest. They replicated the bodies and patched together memories and personalities from the show. Needless to say, it didn't work right. The duplicates want revenge for being banished. The wrath of Grabthar has begun. <laughs> Galaxy Quest 2, the wrath, wrath of, of Grabthar. Grabthar. I like that's that. It. That's my... Like that. That's... Uh, that's Galaxy Quest. Very nice. I like it. So you also kept in the spirit of the show. It's a very Star Trek kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, you know? I thought, because, you know, Star Trek 2 is Wrath of Khan, and also Star Trek Into Darkness was basically right. that as well. So. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very nice. I like it. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, what? Uh, let's see what kind of trivia you have for us about Galaxy Quest. Okay. I've got Sam Rockwell. He based his performance on Bill Paxton's performance in Aliens, which you can see quite well. It's the panic, you know, and he's going to die right. and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. The original tone of the film is going to be much darker with more violence, but after a few test screenings, that, that got changed around a bit. Uh, Tim Allen was starstruck when he met Sigourney Weaver as he was a huge Alien fan. And he actually got it to, to sign some alien, alien bits and pieces that he had. That's cool. I, I quite like that. I like it when you find out that the actors, you know, because you'd be like that because she's alien was huge and you're going to work with her. You will be going, oh, my God. Well, and it makes sense. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, you and I are obviously huge fans of movies. If one of us became a movie star tomorrow and was started working with famous people, it, w- it wouldn't be like all of a sudden we were like, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not interested that you were in Star Wars. You know, oh Harrison Ford. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah, yeah. you know, like yeah. that's not how it would be. I'll play it cool. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, I would try to play it cool, but still, I know, like, yeah. at a certain point, get to point. the dressing room and just be going, "Oh my god!" Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and also, what we've got just we've already mentioned it was uh, Justin Long's film debut, and also turns out that Rain Wilson, who's in the film, he's one of the Thermians, isn't he? He's uh, it was his uh, film debut as well, and Will Wheaton, who played Wesley Crusher in the Star Trek: The Next Generation. He wished that he'd been cast in the film 
He would like to play a fanboy so he could scream at the, the cast for having a kid on the show because that would be stupid. <laughs> that's fun. And that's, I can uh, see that. That's Galaxy Quest. I do I do like it and it's, uh, it's well worth watching. I agree. I agree. It's a terrific movie. And uh, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. You will get some good laughs out of it. Mm, definitely. All right. Well, that's our endings then for Deliverance and Galaxy Quest. If you have thoughts you'd like to share on our endings or you have your own ideas for how the films might end after they end, uh, drop us a line. We'll tell you how to do that in a little bit. Uh, but for now, why don't we move into our Mighty Morphing mini feature, and let's welcome Jackson Murphy to the show. Hello, Jackson. Welcome to After the Ending. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Jackson, I, I've known you for a while, obviously. You've been very successful. Uh, you started off as a sort of a, a kid movie critic, and you've moved into being a teenage movie critic, but I think a lot of people might not know uh, who you are necessarily. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about kind of your journey, you know, what what you've been doing and some of the highlights of, of your experience so far as a movie critic. Yeah, so I started when I was seven years old for the local Radio Disney station in the Albany, New York area. I started reviewing movies because I'd been going to a lot of events for the local station and I'd been coming up to the DJs and talking with them about all the different Disney movies and all the different movies in general that were being released. And one of the DJs went up to my father and he said, you know, this kid knows more about these movies than we do. We got to have him do something for the station. So I started with the movie reviews in January of 2006. And then I was on a local TV station in association with Time Warner for five years. And I've been a member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association for the last almost five years now. And I get to take part in the Critics' Choice Awards, which is one of the big movie award shows of the year. Yeah, and you've and, and listen, you've done a lot of really exciting things. So you've won how many Emmys now? How many New York State Emmys have you won? I won one in 2010. All right, so you've won an Emmy. You've been on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Uh, you've been on every morning show on the planet, right? <laughs> yeah, Jay Leno was incredible, and and the Today Show and and CBS were were wonderful. Can I can I just can I just say that's absolutely amazing. Well, that's amazing, Jackson. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. impressive. Thank yeah. you. Thank and you. yeah, I'm, I met you, I met you when you were what nine, Jackson? I think was when we met, right? Yeah, it was a while. It was, ago. It was yeah, you were it pretty was. young at the time, and you're you're now you're about eighteen, right? Going off to college soon. That's right, almost eighteen, almost off to college. Yeah. So, um, so, so that's kind of been your journey. You've been doing a lot of exciting stuff. You're a, you're a fixture here on the in the local Albany area, but you know you're seen worldwide. I mean, you even appear on Australian television. Is that not correct? That is, yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, yeah, I was just on again recently talking about Ghostbusters and the big controversy surrounding it. Right, Ooh, right. Yeah. And then I know at Oscar time, you always uh, pop up on some of the shows too, giving your Oscar picks and, and kind of some, some punditry about, about that, right? I love going on Fox Sports Radio, especially talking with those guys, giving my picks, and we battle back and forth about who should win and Fly 92 every Friday with Brian and Chrissy, and that's right. always great, yeah. Hey, what do you prefer doing, the TV or the radio? Ooh, that's tough. I mean, I, I love radio, but um, it's, there's something that's always I've always loved about being in front of the camera. You know, when I was young, yeah. watching Regis Philbin and Roger Ebert, and just seeing what they could do, being in front of the camera, telling stories, giving their opinions, and being themselves that's exactly what i wanted to do oh cool okay and Excellent. you're doing it so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> at a far younger age than than most people do so so good props to you jackson well um you know i know that uh, you are uh, doing a sort of charity initiative of some sort if i'm not mistaken so why don't you uh, you can explain it a lot better than i can so why don't you fill uh, listeners in on on what you're doing and and why we're kind of talking to you tonight yeah, so I am taking part in the LCJ, the Lights Camera Jackson Podathon. So I'm going on a bunch of different podcasts, at least a dozen, if not closer to 20, uh, when all is said and done, and raising money for Make a Wish. Make a Wish is so close to my heart. I have a few friends who basically Make a Wish has saved their lives and made their lives and their family li families' lives a lot better. Movies can change your life, people can change your life, and so can Make a Wish. They can really make dreams come true. So if you go to my Twitter page, twitter.com slash lcjreviews. I've got a pinned tweet there. You click on that link. It takes you to the CrowdRise page. There's a big orange button that says donate. You click on that. You can donate to Make-A-Wish. So yeah, I'm uh, doing this big, big LCJ potathon for Make-A-Wish. Awesome. I like that. Well, listen, you know, 
Honestly, I, was, I wasn't going to have you on the show until you told me it was from Make-A-Wish. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, we're, we're happy to have you. But I, I, I do want to say that, um, like you, I think Make-A-Wish is, is a charity that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I'm, I know Phil's as well. Uh, yeah, not because yeah. I've had any real personal experience with it, but I'm, I'm, you know, any charities that help make kids' lives better to me is, I think, the most important thing that you can do. So, um, you know, when I heard that you were doing this for Make-A-Wish, I was very, very excited to, to be a part of it, to, you know, to do our little part to help you out. And I think it's great that you're, you know, at such a young age, you're being, you know, such a conscientious, you know, kid, which is great. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you look at what what they've done, uh, the story of Bad Kid, the little boy who. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The film, the Bad Kid Begins that came out about a year ago, the documentary showing that San Francisco was transformed into Gotham City. And it was such an incredible day for so many reasons and a fascinating documentary to look at. So, yeah, that's just one example of, of all the great work that they do. Yeah, it's terrific stuff. Terrific. So. All right. Well, we wanted to, uh, to have Jackson on the show. We also thought it would be fun to include him in our mini feature tonight um, because it, we, we thought there'd be some contrast. Uh, so this is what we call Movie Memories A Go-Go, uh, in which we are each going to share some of our, our first and favorite memories of going to or watching movies. So uh, Jackson, age before beauty, uh, why, don't you, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you go ahead and, and start us off? Do you have a particular movie memory that, that you wanted to share? Well, when I tell people about the first movie that I ever saw, I, I used to always say I was in my mother's womb for Mulan, and we were, they were at the drive-ins, and, and I kicked her in the funny parts. That's what I always say. <laughs> right. But as, as far as actually being in the theater, it was May of 2003, oh, and I, uh, I went to see the Lizzie McGuire movie with my parents. Wow. I, I had grown up watching Lizzie McGuire, and I loved that show, and Hilary Duff, and... I, you know, we went to the movie, and my parents always tell this story to people. Um, I remember bits and pieces visually, but basically in a stadium-seated theater, they were sitting in two chairs, and I was in the middle. But I stood up uh, behind the row in front of me the entire time with my eyes glued to the screen. <laughs> and my parents looked at each other and thought... There's going to be something with our son and movies. We have no idea what it's going to be yet, but clearly this was an indication of something. And that really did happen. And, and clearly something crazy and wild did happen that none of us could have imagined. But yes, Lizzie McGuire movie, May of 03. My eyes really were glued to the screen. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, at least it wasn't Hannah Montana. So, um, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, thank God. Yes. Thank no, God. actually, um, I, I like Hilary Duff. Um, you know, and I think that's, I mean, a lot of kids' first movies are, are you know, kids' films. And, and kids' films are great. I mean, you know, both Phil and I have kids. We watch a lot of kids' movies. And I think that's, you know, I think it's great that your parents were good enough parents for, for both of them to go sit through the Lizzie McGuire movie because a lot of parents will be like, no, you go ahead. You you take the kids to go see that one. I'll I'll be fine, you know. So well, yeah. I mean, as as an only child, and and, and with parents who liked the show too, and liked Hillary Duff, and knew that I was a fan. And I think I don't know that we had been going to the drive-ins once a year uh, for the since I was born at you know one, two, three, and then when I became four, going to Lizzie. And uh, yeah, they they love that story, and I love that story. Sure. Yeah. The rest is history, as they say. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Uh, so, Phil, why don't you why don't you go next? Share with us share with us one of your okay. Well, well, mine it goes back uh, to uh, 1978 or 1979. Oh wait, it wasn't it wasn't 2003, Phil? No, like it no. Was for Jackson? It was just before because <laughs> it was uh, it was Superman, uh, which came out in December of 78. So actually, it was, it was I remember it was warm, so it was probably the summer of 79. So I was five or six, but I remember going into the film and enjoying it immensely. Uh, but uh, just. Tiny little bit of a backstory. When I was born, the first few years of my life, I had problems with my legs. I couldn't walk properly and things like that, but I was walking fine by then, but still not a big runner or anything, and I always ache, my legs ache. But after watching that, apparently, and I've, I have recollections of this, but I came out and I'm going, I'm going to run like Superman. And I remember just running as fast as I can down it because it was dark and running down the, the pavement or sidewalk, as you call it. Uh, running as fast as I could, and there was a little fence, and I remember looking up, and there was a poster for Superman as well, and I just felt like I was running faster than anything. Wow, that's uh, that's one of my f earliest movie memories. That's, that's awesome, incredible. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Well, and that just goes to show how inspiring movies can be, you know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, but no, that's uh, yeah, it's still that's one of my earliest memories. Actually, thinking about it, sure, sure. Yeah, that's that's so that's me. What about you, Mike? What's uh, what have you got? Well, this is one of my um, earlier memories. It's not my my earliest, but it's kind of. Um, 
one of those ones that has impacted me, I think. Uh, and it was when I was about, I want to say I was about eight years old. Uh, I was over at a friend's house, and they had HBO. And for somehow or another, I still don't understand to this day how my, my friend's parents convinced my mom uh, that it would be okay to watch Poltergeist with them, <laughs> um, the original Poltergeist. Now, now, Jackson, you may not know this, but the remake of Poltergeist actually inspired this podcast. Um and I told that story way back in, in episode one. But uh, the original Poltergeist, so I was young. And I always scared easily as a kid as it was. I mean, I used to, you know, Scooby-Doo episodes would you know, keep me up at night. So, um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Not because of Scooby, Phil. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, so anyway, so we watched, So I watched Poltergeist mostly through my hands, I think. Um, and I, I was scared to death. I mean, it was it was at the time the scariest movie I'd ever seen. And, and what what I think... What really stuck with me of all of the things, I mean, there's the tree and all this stuff, but there's the scene where the dad is eating chicken and he puts it on the counter and he looks back at it and it's crawling. It's covered with maggots. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. And that impacted me so much that to this day, you know, 20 some odd years later, I still cannot look. Maggots still are to me. If I see anything <laughs> has to do with them, I'm completely grossed out. Like it is still such a visceral reaction for me. I will never not be grossed out by maggots. Just saying the word makes my skin crawl. So, wow. yeah, I've never had a reaction like that to, a, to anything in a film before. But that is definitely like I, I wouldn't say I'm afraid of them. But, man, nothing grosses me out like like uh, I'm not even going to say it again like they do. So so that's maggots, maggots, maggots. So here you guys are all, you know, inspirational and, you know, the <laughs> beginnings of this. And here I am like, ah, I, I can't I can't do it. So gross. So I, I can't do that type of a birthday prank for you. Then. <laughs> Uh, no, that would no, be a very, be very bad idea. Make sure you know, do the own it, though. There are some pranks that are, like, funny and some that are just cruel. Yeah, that would that would be one of those because, I, I yeah. I'm down with that, though. Let's do it. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> so, anyway, so that was that's one of my earliest memories. All right. So, Jackson, you have another one you want to share? Yeah, I have another early memory. So, this is now 2005, vacationing at Cape Cod. And my father was busy with his parents, my grandparents, for the day at their house. It was kind of rainy. We had already gone to see a local theater production. We'd already gone mini-golfing and bowling and other things over the week. So wondering of things to do. So we look in the paper, and I'd already seen a bunch of movies that were out in theaters, including Kicking and Screaming with Will Ferrell. So I was used to seeing some Will Ferrell films on the screen. And so we looked, and we saw that Bewitched was playing at one of the theaters. Mm -hmm. and, and so my mother and I decided to go see Bewitched. Now, you know, because of Will Ferrell, because I was already into knowing about classic TV shows, I'd already seen a little bit of Bewitched. But I was a six-year-old going to see a PG-13 rated movie <laughs> right. with stuff, no pun intended, literally flying over my head. <laughs> but, um, you know, we went and I remember walking into the theater with my mother to see Bewitched. And maybe theater people were wondering why this little, little boy was going to see Bewitched. But I enjoyed it and I still feel like it's a, it's a guilty pleasure to this day whenever I see Bewitched come on TV. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I do remember that very well. Well, you oh, know, there, you. listen, there's a lot worse films a six-year-old could see than that. So I think, yeah, I think yeah. you're okay. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it was, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was like my first PG-13 experience. Right, right. Very cool. All right, so Phil, what's, uh, what's your other early movie memory? Okay, I can't remember how old I was, but it was still, it was, uh, came out in 79. So it was, again, it was 80, 81 or something, but it was the film Alien. But it's, I didn't actually say it at that point, but my, I've got a memory of it because I wanted to say it. I've read about it. It was in things. There was pictures. It might have been a bit, a couple of years after it first came out, maybe when it was coming on TV. But I, yeah, it probably was that because it was, it was probably coming on TV and I wanted to see it, but I knew it was too young and wasn't going to be allowed. So I asked my granddad to watch it for me. <laughs> and, it, and he said he would, even though he didn't like scary things and he wasn't, he wasn't that big a fan of sci-fi. But he watched it. And then I remember the next day going around to his house and going, what was it like? And he was going, oh, it was really good, but a bit scary. And he drew me a picture of the alien. Oh, wow. But, but he drawn it with a great big smile on it, so it's not to scare me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that. That was it. That was my first experience with Alien. It was him describing it to. He was describing it to me as well, but without any of the violence or the things. He just said it came out to the guy and all this stuff, and and he didn't mention you know how bad it was. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my memory. My granddad telling me about Alien and drawing a picture of a smiley alien. That's great. I, I wish I still had the picture, but oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's. Uh, that's it. It's funny because I remember I, you know, I didn't have much concept of Alien when I was a kid, and I remember the first time I heard of Aliens was actually in a bookstore. There was a, a like an end cap of novelizations of summer movies, and oh, yeah. the Aliens one. My my friend that I was with said, "Oh, Aliens! I want to see that because I love the first one." I'm like, 
well, what was the first one? And he's like, Alien. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> like, I just didn't, had no concept of that. I used to love all those, uh, the movie adaptations, you know, the, the paperback books. I used oh, to yeah. have loads of them. Yeah, absolutely. Used to, used to enjoy reading them, always, especially because they'd, they'd often have like a little scene or bits and pieces with twin in the actual film. Right. Now, Jackson, Jackson, a paperback book is this thing that they used to have, <laughs> and it was sort of like um, like like an internet, but on paper. Yeah, it's like a Kindle, a Kindle made <laughs> of paper. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I've heard about those. <laughs> right, yeah, a little right. before my time, I guess. I remember getting um, the ultimate sticker books of a lot of the animated oh, yeah. movies yeah. when I was young. They used to do those all the time, and they don't anymore, but the Pixar movies, like Up and Ice Age, some of the Ice Age films, and I used to do the ultimate sticker books, and they were great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I remember getting the sticker books when I was a kid for the Star Wars films mm-hmm. i remember i never finished the return of the jedi one i just couldn't get it the last two or something because oh, there was there was always those one or two stickers that were completely yeah. impossible to get yeah. i think they did it on purpose so you'd buy more packs but yeah. it was frustrating because you'd have you know all these pages complete and then you'd have like you know han solo's face missing or something you yeah know? and they'd have somewhere it was like you need four stickers to make the one picture yeah <laughs> right, and you right. just have that one missing going no uh-huh. i want to see the other half of darth vader's mask <laughs> exactly <laughs> well funny you mentioned that phil because my other early movie memory actually has to do with star wars and so uh, it was 1980, and we went to see The Empire Strikes Back in theaters. And uh, I will never forget this as long as I live. So we're, we're all watching the movie, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I. And uh, during the, the climactic lightsaber duel between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, there is a point in the carbon freezing chamber where Luke is, you know, Darth Vader's disappeared, and Luke is sort of looking for him. And Darth Vader suddenly jumps out and flashes his lightsaber. And my sister, who was, you know, about three years older than me, um, so still a little kid, screamed and dumped her soda on my dad's lap. <laughs> and like, completely, like, like, I mean, it was like a pretty big soda, dumped it, like, because she just, like, threw her arms out and dumped her soda on his lap. So my dad had to go to the bathroom to clean up and ended up missing, you know, pretty much one of the most iconic yeah. moments in movie history. <laughs> You know, where where obviously Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's dad. So, you know, I mean, I don't remember, you know, what happened after that. But I can, I, in my head, I like to picture my dad being like, so what I miss? And it's like, uh, I'll just Everything. tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the one I'll just I always will remember Empire Strikes Back that, you know, my dad ended up wearing a giant Coke because. Uh, and he's probably know. fuming because, they you know, the drinks always cost a bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> you would think. I don't think my dad really ever fumed about anything. He was he was a pretty laid back guy, but. Uh, still, cool. I, still, you know, not not really the best movie to have to walk out on for sure. No, no, uh, so that's good though. I like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. So there you go. That is our movie memory a go go, and uh, we'd like to thank our special guest Jackson Murphy for coming in and participating, sharing some of his memories with us. Jackson, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Jackson, why don't you tell people once again where they can find uh, your charity? Yes, yeah. Twitter.com slash LCJReviews. The link is right there in a pinned tweet. You click on that. It'll take you to the CrowdRise page, and you can donate to Make-A-Wish, and you can look for all of my reviews at lights-camera-jackson.com. Very nice. And, and you know, Phil and I, we've mentioned a charity or two on the show before. As always, you know, we, we never want people to feel obligated to donate money, but if if you have a few dollars you'd like to spare, I really don't think you can find too many causes that are better than the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So please do swing by Jackson's page. And uh, and if you have a couple bucks, you know, send them over to the kids. All right. So, Jackson, thanks again. And uh, we will talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. And um, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Okay, well, thanks again to Jackson for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun to talk with him. Why don't we move on now to a time before he was born, uh, way back to 1962. Before all of us were born. Thank That's you very true, much. actually. Yeah. That's right. You're right. I should, I should point that out. That is before any of us were born. Um, Phil, why don't you tell people what was happening in the world back in the early swinging 60s? Okay, 1962 here in the UK, we had the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan. And over in the US, the President was John F. Kennedy. Uh, so some events that happened in 62. The US Navy SEALs were activated for the first time. Uh, a little group called the Beatles auditioned for Decca Records, but they were rejected. Oh, the best. Terrible. People who rejected the Beatles must be kicking themselves. you got to wonder. Like, I mean, I I you got to imagine what that what that experience must have been like. You know, like right around, I don't know, 66, 67, and you're like, yeah. you know, I turned them down. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought they were rubbish. Oh. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. announced an embargo on Cuba, uh, also one that you'll quite like. Uh, Taco Bell was founded 
And yes. We still got to get them on as corporate sponsors, I think, Phil. Let's make that. We should make that one of our missions. Uh, we have the Ranger 4 spacecraft crashed into the moon. Uh, Telstar, the first communication satellite, was launched. Marilyn Monroe died. Nelson Mandela was arrested. And the Centralia mine fire in Pennsylvania began. And it is still burning And today. still hasn't burned out. That's yeah. right. Which that's is... a pretty – it's not too far from where I live, actually. Oh, I mean, okay. As far wow. as okay. in the, the grand scheme of things. I mean, it's probably five or six hours away from me. But it's – you know, and, and yeah. compared to where you live, obviously, yeah, it's a lot closer. Bit, so. yeah. It's at least on my side of the country. Oh, but, but I just found it crazy. It's been burning all these years, and you reckon it's going to burn for like – a long, long time. Yeah, and I think um, it's you know they evacuated the town, but I think there's something like a hundred citizens that still live there. Wow, that won't you know like like you see in the movies like those old oh, yeah. people that won't give I'm up their homes. I'm not moving for no one. <laughs> That's right. So there's a movie to be made there <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't been in more. Okay, we also had some uh, celeb some births. These people were born in 1962. Jim Carrey, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Lou Diamond Phillips, Adam Baldwin, Matthew Broderick, Amelia Estevez, Ali Sheedy, Tom Cruise, Anthony Edwards. Wesley Snipes, John Slattery, Steve Carell, Baz Luhrmann, Jodie Foster, John Cusack, and Carrie Elwes. And some people making their film debuts in 1962 were Jackie Chan, Julie Christie, Robert Duvall, Ian McShane, Tom Skerritt, Sally Field, John Hurt, and a bloke by the name of Robert Redford. Ah, Robert Redford. You know, I'm just so glad that you know we we don't go an episode without bringing him up. So he's <laughs> he we'll add him to our list. So we got to get Taco Bell as a sponsor. We got to get Ty Sheridan on the show, and we got to get Robert Redford on the show. Yeah, yeah. Oops. So I'm throwing that out there for our listeners. If any of you uh, work for Taco Bell or happen to you know know Robert Redford or Ty Sheridan or The Rock, I'm going to throw that out there because I'm a big Dwayne Johnson fan. So we'll add him to our list. We're going to have a little list. So yeah, if if you know Redford, Ty Sheridan, or, or Dwayne Johnson, or you work for Taco Bell, uh, drop us a line. Yeah, or if you know okay. if you know Scarlett Johansson as well, <laughs> right? Well, we don't care if she's on the show. We just want to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> no, we want her on the show. She, well, that's that's true. I want to ask you know why 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 we haven't had a Black Widow. Right, I, I'd be happy just to hang out with her. Yeah, she's kind of cool. Yeah, 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 she's cool. All right, well, Phil, why don't you kick things off then and give us your number ten? Okay, my number ten is a French science fiction short film by Chris Marker, which constructed just using still photos, and it is Le Jeté. It was shot in black and white, 28 minutes long, and it's what inspired Terry Gilliam to make 12 Monkeys because it's pretty much the same story. Indeed. Also, 12 Monkeys, one of my favorite films of all yes, time. It's very so. good. And it's, uh, it's, it doesn't sound, it sounds a bit, uh, you know, it's art house kind of thing, but it's, it's fascinating to watch, to be honest, because it is just still photography. It just shows what you can do. Because people are always saying, I want to make a movie. And you're always saying, well, go out and make a movie. And you go, well, I can't because I, I haven't got the equipment. But you can do it this way. You can do any so many different ways but this is it's a great little short film and it uh, makes you think absolutely it's a great pick thank you very much what about your number 10 all right so my number 10 is sort of the oddball of the list uh but i'm gonna throw it out there anyway and it is a symposium on popular songs starring one ludwig von drake now in case this doesn't ring a bell no it's, no. it's a disney short film that played in theaters, and it was uh, nominated for an Oscar for Best Short Film. And the reason that I included it is because uh, Professor Ludwig von Drake holds a special place in my heart. And he is the character... He talks with like a pseudo German accent, and he did all the like the kind of sciencey, informationy short films for Disney back in like the fifties and the sixties. Uh, and he, okay. he, I think everybody's seen him at one yeah, point. He's always ex Bella, yeah. explaining something, or he does a lot of the sports movies that Goofy was in. He's explaining how aerodynamics works, or how dinosaurs lived, and things like that. And so this one was uh, about popular music and, and how it had developed over the years from classical music to the music of the 60s. And uh, I just really loved the character of Ludwig von Drake. And I actually remember having watched this one. So because of that and because he, it's sort of representative of all the short films that he was in for Disney, I, I, I snuck it onto my list at, at, at number 10. Oh, no, it's very, very good. And it's, as you say, it's our list, so we can, we can bend the rules. Listen, if I want to have a... a talking German duck on my top 10 list, I'm going to. Well, we should do that. We should do a top 10 German talking duck <laughs> films. <laughs> yes. Top 10 talking animal films. That we could do. I don't know. The talking the talking German duck might be a little, <laughs> you know, a little, it might be hard to find a good number of films to try, but, but yeah. Good suggestion, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> okay, for my number nine, it's another French film, directed, produced, and written by Francois Truffaut. And star Jean Moreau, Oscar Werner, and Henry Serre, or Serre, I'm not sure, but it's uh, Jules et Jim. Uh, it's uh, 
set during World War I, and it's a love triangle. Uh, it's got French Bohemian people all doing, you know, all looking cool, looking beautiful. Lots of people looking miserable as well, but it's lots of cigarette smoke. But it's it's a it's a great film. Uh, some great acting. These things are just beautiful to look at. Uh, and for those listeners who might not recognize it in the French pronunciation, it is oftentimes shorthanded to Jules and Jim. Uh, I know Phil, you pronounced it the right way, but uh, you know if you if you're kind of sitting there thinking, right, I haven't I haven't heard of that film. You might have heard of it called Jules and Jim. That's sort of how at least us Americans tend to pronounce it. So we're uncultured swine. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything to say after that. But yeah, that was my number nine. What have you got? All right. Well, my number nine is The Miracle Worker, starring Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke. And it is the story of Helen Keller and the speech-language pathologist who changed her life. And I, I say that because my wife is a speech-language pathologist. So, you know, among the, the speech community, everyone knows that even though Helen Keller is the famous one, it's it's her... It's her therapy, her therapist or teacher that, you know, really deserves a lot of the credit. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, um, uh, you know, a movie I saw when I was young, just kind of a, a classic biopic, but it is one that I, I remember. I thought Patty Duke was great in it and Bancroft was great in it. So uh, it, it made its way. It snuck its way onto my list. Uh, OK, so where are we up to now? It's up to number eight is there's been it's been made many different versions, but it's Mutiny on the Bounty. This was the one that's starring Marlon Brando, Trevor Howard and Richard Harris. Uh, we tells the the, the, well, the mutiny on the bounty. We know the story. Fletcher Christian, William Bly, lots of to and fro and arguments between the the crew. Uh, you've got some amazing actors in there, and it's uh, it's a great movie. Very good pick. Did not make my list um, mostly because I don't think I've actually seen it. Oh yeah, well it's it, yeah. At least not the whole way through. All right, well, my number eight is not quite so lofty. In fact, it's the worst movie probably on either one of our lists. Um, it's not even a good movie. It's a, In fact, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> so why is it on my list, you may ask? Well, that's because it is King Kong versus Godzilla. And I've actually watched it recently, and it, it's pretty horrible. But, you know, I'm a huge King Kong fan. I, I like Godzilla. The idea of just these two monsters duking it out in completely ridiculous fashion, uh, it, you know, it's it's cheesy and it's it's poorly made, but... I don't know. It's just fun. It's nostalgic and it's goofy. And I like watching a giant gorilla fighting a giant dinosaur type monster. So we all love those go. kind of films. All right. How about your number seven? Okay. My number seven is uh, the Manchurian candidates. As uh, some of you if, may have seen the 2004 remake with Denzel Washington, but this is the, uh, the black and white thriller directed by John Frankenheimer starring Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Janet Lee, and Angela Lansbury. It's about some guys who were, uh, some soldiers who are captured and brainwashed and one of them comes back and goes into politics and you're not sure whether he's a bad guy or a good guy and it's all brainwashing and who's who's the baddie, who's the goodie. And it's always, uh, Frank Sinatra was a great actor. And he, oh, he was. Yeah, and some of the roles he picked, like this one and the man with the golden arm, it's just for someone like him to do these things and do them well, it's uh, great to see. Well, my number seven is The Music Man, starring Robert Preston. And uh, I don't know for sure, but I hear there's trouble, trouble in River City. Uh, again, second week in a row, a musical makes my list, even though I, I, I keep saying I'm not a fan of them. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I, maybe I secretly am. But, you know, it's not one of my favorite movies. But I think as far as what came out in 1962, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a good musical that everybody knows. It's got some great songs. You know, it's very colorful and bright. And it's just a fun movie to watch, so... Very there good. You go. you know, yeah. like I don't think I've seen it, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's again, it's not saying like, oh, you should rush out and watch it. But again, if it's on TV or something, you know, it, yeah, it can yeah. be it can be a fun viewing experience. Cool. OK. Uh, my number six is The Day of the Triffids, based on the 1951 sci-fi novel by John Wyndham. It's been made into TV shows, I think, probably on both sides of the Atlantic. But uh, yeah, this is the film which is starring Howard Keel, Nicole Morey and Janet Scott. It's about uh, a comet comes over and there's triffids, the plants that can end up walking around eating people. People are blinded by the comet and then the triffids start eating people as well. And it's one of them. It's a cheesy B-movie, but I like those kind of films. And this one is, uh, I had good memories of watching it when I was a kid. Absolutely. All right. Well, my number six is a film that has already appeared on your list and it is La Jetée. 
Uh, as you mentioned, it was the uh, inspiration for 12 Monkeys. And, you know, if anything, I'm, I probably made it that high on my list more because of my love of 12 Monkeys than yeah, because yeah. of my love of La Jete, which is a very good film. And like you said, it's very creative in how it's made all with, you know, still photographs and, and voiceover and stuff. Um, I, I don't I, I do think that 12 Monkeys is kind of the, the better film because it's more. Obviously, you, you can't really compare them. You know, one is yeah. more of an art film. One is a you know a full budgeted science fiction film. But. You know, I, I was interested in La Jete because of my love of 12 Monkeys. And so when I, I watched it, I was impressed with what they did with it. And just the story and the concept and the ending, um, which they saved, which they kept for 12 Monkeys, which blew me away. Yeah. You know, in that film, it blew me away just as much to see that, you know, it was in this original film. Such a such a great kind of twist ending for such a short, what seems like a slight project, you know, that actually oh, is definitely, very, yeah. very yeah. deep. So, so yeah, there you go. Okay, my number five, yep, number five is Harry Kiri, a Japanese period drama directed by Masaki Kobayashi. Uh, and it's basically follows the plights, of, well, we follow a, a warrior without a lord or a ronin, master of samurai. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film. It's a great one of its kind. Very cool. I have not seen that one, uh, but I have heard good things about it, so it's yeah. on my list. Well, worth watching. So what have you got for your number five? All right, my number five is That Touch of Mink, starring Cary Grant and Doris Day. A little lighter, frothier fare than uh, much yeah, of what's yeah. on my list. But, you know, um, growing up, I watched a lot of classic Hollywood movies, and uh, of all the classic stars, Cary Grant was was my favorite for a long, long time. I, yeah, I've moved yeah. into other actors. I mean, I still love Cary Grant, but uh, I think he's been overtaken by people like Jimmy Stewart and, and especially Humphrey Bogart, who's become one of my absolute favorites. Uh, but growing up, if Cary Grant was on TV, I was going to watch it. Yeah, he's always fun to watch, isn't he? That's the... Yeah, yeah, and he made great movies. You know, mm. so he was just so dashing and debonair, and I, I thought he was so cool. So, uh, so that touch of mink is, you know, it's definitely a little bit like I said, it's it's not deep, heavy filmmaking, but it's a fun it's a fun romp and I have fun memories of watching it. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good pick. My number four is an Italian film directed, written and directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. It's La Clisse. It stars... That's not a name I would have really wanted to have when I was, like, I don't know, going to kindergarten. Like, if you, like, write your name on your paper, he's like, oh, God, I'll be here all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah, it's called... Uh, the film, though, is called La Clisse, or an English Eclipse. And it stars Alain Delon, and Monica Vitti, gorgeously shot in Roman Verona. And it's about, so we follow a woman who has an older lover and has an affair with a younger man, played by Ellen Delon. And it's it's beautiful. Monica Vitti's beautiful. It's basically lots of Italian people standing in silence, smoking, looking a bit miserable. But it's all romantic and it's despondent. It's all, like with many, lots of art house or, you know, European films, you sort of have to be in the mood. Well, my number four pick is probably one of the most famous movies from classic Hollywood times, and it is Lawrence of Arabia, starring Peter O'Toole. And it's a humongous, sweeping epic, one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen. Uh, it probably could have been higher on my list if it was a little shorter, as we know. Uh, some of these <laughs> movies that, you know, just go on forever, they, they lose points in my book for that. It is a great film. It is a little too long, in my opinion. Uh, Peter O'Toole is fantastic. And really, just, just watching it, the scenery and the shots and the cinematography it's really an amazing experience yeah it's, it's uh, yeah it's fantastic okay so my number three is the first james bond film dr no but uh this is the one with sean connery as Andres, and well i don't really need to explain dr no to you do i it's everybody <laughs> everybody's probably seen it i think you can say the yeah. first james bond movie most people will understand why it's on your list yeah so that's uh, that's it that's my number three all right. Well, you know, once again, I want to remind viewers that you and I don't compare our lists before <laughs> before each episode because it's we, number three again. Is it? It's we seem to have a penchant for falling on the same movies at the number three spot. So my number three is Doctor No. Awesome. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, as as I've said on the show before, most times there's a James Bond movie, it will probably end up in my top ten. Yeah. Uh, I, I love Doctor No. Um, it is you know very iconic, and it's a, you know even though it's the first James Bond, and it's not as stylized as some of the later ones you know the characters a little still a little rougher around the edges it's still a great movie it holds up really well even 50 years later so uh, a, a good pick and once again those dual number threes yeah well crazy yeah okay my uh well we're not the last two now my number two is to kill a mockingbird uh, directed by robert mulligan based on harper lee's you know slightly famous book <laughs> yeah <a little> bit. <laughs> yeah so as gregory peck as atticus finch mary badham as scout also features Philip Alford, yeah, and also stars Robert Duvall as Boo Radley. Uh, it's another, it's one of the, probably one of the best 
book adaptations done supremely well. The way it's shot, the acting, it's a it's a brilliant film. Well, I, I gotta say, Phil, I'm dying to know what your number one is when you put To Kill a Mockingbird at number two. So we'll <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But for now, my number two film has also appeared on your list, and it is The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, like you said, Frank Sinatra is terrific in it. Uh, and also, you know, speaking of movie memories, we talked about earlier. This is again one of the earliest like you know, conspiracy thrillers I can remember watching. I think I saw this movie mm-hmm. when I was a kid and, you know, I was just blown away by it. I love that kind of movie still to this day. And I would say that this film is probably one of the reasons for that because it had such an impact on me. You know, so when you're a kid, you know, you watch so much kid stuff that when you start to venture into a, you know, grown up material, yeah. um, I, I think some of it can really impact you. And, and this was a film where I was just really taken by how different it was from everything I'd experienced and this whole concept of these conspiracies and, and brainwashing. Yeah. You know, a lot of things I hadn't really seen before, so. Yeah, it's just right. It's, it's right. One film can just suddenly open open your, your mind, not because of the brainwashing, but open your mind to, <laughs> right. to all these, these ideas and things and you're suddenly going, oh, wow, and then you, yeah, it can lead you down down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. So this is definitely one of those movies, I think, that sort of, you know, you know, led to my kind of love of cinema, you know, just really discovering, you know, new genres and new avenues of filmmaking. So Brilliant, that's yeah. my number two. So I'm, I'm dying to hear, Phil, what do you have for number one then? Mine's already been, it's one that's already been on your list, and it is Lawrence of Arabia. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, I can see that. I can yeah. see that. Yeah, because it's, uh, I don't even mean where it's, it's a bit long, but I remember watching it the first few times when I was younger watching it, it was like it would drag down a bit. But then watching it since when I've been older, I went because it was played at the cinema over in Liverpool. The uh, the Philharmonic Hall where they have the screen. The guy comes on, he's playing a, an organ to begin with, and the screen rises up out of the the stage, which is amazing. So well, I saw it there again about uh, ten years ago, and it just it hit me even more of how magnificent it is. Mm-hmm. And it, it by the end of it, then it didn't seem long enough. You know, <laughs> right, you're, right. Watch, you're watching it, and because it, it just seemed to be. Yeah, there's bits where you go, no, there should be more of this, there should be more of that. But it's uh, brilliant. Peter O'Toole is just stunning in it. And the cinematography, uh, I mean, the bit with Omar Sharif coming out of the, the desert. and Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so many it's amazing so many amazing shots. Beautiful film. But yeah, No Lawrence of Arabia, brilliant film. That's my number one of 1962. Well, that is a worthy pick, Phil. So I, I do I do approve. Uh, I, I'm going to say my number one will probably not come as a surprise to anybody who's been <laughs> paying attention for the past four minutes or so. Uh, and it is To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> I guess that one. But you know what's funny about To Kill a Mockingbird for me is I've, I've actually never read the novel yet. I keep meaning to. It's one of those things I've just never gotten around to. And, and for some reason, I didn't read it in high school like everybody else seems yeah. to have. But uh, I didn't see the movie for a long time. And it was one of those things where, you know, you grow up with it and everyone knows To Kill a Mockingbird, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I was pretty well into my life. And I finally got around to seeing it when one of the various anniversary DVDs or something came out. And, you know, at this point, I was probably in my 30s. And, you know, it's hard. You think a movie like that can't really live up to the hype. I mean, it's the greatest novel of all time. You know, it's one of the most beloved films of all time. I mean, how how can it possibly be as good as everyone says it is? Uh, yeah, and I and then I, I watched it and I was like, this is one of the best movies of all time. I mean, it, <laughs> it is, it is it, to my mind, it's just, it's amazing. It's a phenomenal film. Gregory Peck, it, his performance in it is Probably one of the greatest performances in the history of film, in my opinion. I mean, he's just amazing in it. And the story is so great. And, you know, I, I really do think that there are few films better uh, than To Kill a Mockingbird, in my opinion. So uh, it definitely was going to be number one on my list. And um, it, it's certainly a favorite for sure. I think uh, I think it's a, you know, it's a well-loved film for a reason. Yeah, it's a fantastic film, yeah. There we go. All right, well, how did we do, Phil, compared to the box office? Take us through the top ten of 1962. Okay, uh, just outside, because we both mentioned it, though, number 11 was The Manchurian Candidate. Which is interesting, because that's a film that's had a really long footprint. You know, I mean, it's mm, still considered, yeah. it's still con- it's still a film that comes up in the film conversation, you know, so I'm yeah. surprised that it wasn't a bigger hit. I know, I know what you mean, but uh, number 10 was Bon Voyage, mm-hmm. a Disney film starring Fred McMurray and Jane Wyman. Wyman. Uh, number 9 was Gypsy, starring Rosalind Russell, Natalie Wood and Carl Malden. Uh, number 8 was Hatari, starring John Wayne. And red buttons. Okay, number seven was *To Kill a Mockingbird*. And hmm. uh, number six was *Mutiny on the Bounty*. Right. Number five was *The Music Man*. You mentioned that one, didn't you? Yep. That was on yours. Number four was *A Touch of Mink*. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Uh, number three, *In Search of the Castaways*, another Disney film starring Haley Mills and Morris Chevalier. Right. And uh, number two is *The Longest Day*, starring John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Robert Mitchum, Sean Connery, Richard Burton. Uh, but number one was *Lawrence of Arabia*. Well, there you go. I'm a little surprised that the To Kill a Mockingbird didn't come in higher on the list. Yeah, me too. Let's see. Was uh, so To Kill a Mockingbird? It's saying thirteen million 
Uh, Lawrence Arabia, 44 million. Oh, okay. That's a pretty big difference, though. But I'm, yeah. I'm still surprised. I thought To Kill a Mockingbird would have been a bigger yeah. hit at the time. I mean, clearly it was in the top 10, so it was still a popular film. I just would have expected it to be number one or two, you know? But if uh, people out there want to let us know what their favorite films were in 1962, you can get in touch with us, and we'll tell you that in a minute. All right, well, that wraps up our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes for this week. Uh, Phil, why don't you tell people what year and what films we'll be discussing in next week's episode? Yes, next week we will be doing uh, the top 10 films of 1991. And we'll be giving after the endings to Ed TV. That's the one with uh, Matthew McConaughey. And it's the reality film. And The Usual Suspects, a little film starring a few famous people. Who is Kaiser Suze? <laughs> Kaiser Suze. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I will tell you now, if you have not seen The Usual Suspects yet, uh, oh, yeah. what, you, you should now? definitely watch it before you listen to next week's episode because A, it's a brilliant film, and B, you really don't want the ending of that movie spoiled. You you really want to see this movie. I think most people have seen it by now, but just in case yeah. you haven't, yeah. go watch it before you listen to next week's episode because uh, it, it'll definitely – you definitely will enjoy our, our endings more if you've seen the film. And also next week, because uh, Kevin Spacey's in The Usual Suspects, I might bore you with some stories of when I'm at Kevin Spacey. Oh, well, I can't wait to hear that. Please yeah. do. Well, that's pretty much the story. <laughs> no, because <laughs> I was it. over. I was over in Dublin for a uh, a screening of the Usual Suspects, and he was there and uh, chatted to him for quite a bit. Oh, that's cool. But that that's uh, that's next week. So, 1991 Ed TV and the Usual Suspects. You know, you want to listen to it. It's going to be good. You can't miss that. Come on now. Yeah. All right, Phil. Why don't you tell people also then how they can get in touch with us so they can share their thoughts about the show and our endings and our picks for movies and all that good stuff. Yes, you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can listen to us on iTunes, search for after the ending. I'm on soundcloud.com backslash after the ending podcast. And we're also on Stitcher. And and you can also email us directly by sending a message to after the ending at verizon.net. That's V-E-R-I-Z-O-N.net. Phil, how can people find you online if they want to track you down? If you want to find me, I am at liveforfilms.com and it's also on Twitter at live underscore for F-O-R underscore films. And it's also I'm also on Facebook. Google+, Plus, Instagram, and all the places. Search for Liffa Films and you'll find me. And where can they find you, Mike? Well, as always, you can hop on over to my website, wordsoutloud.com, where you can tr- download some free books that I've written, and you can find me on all of your major ebook retailers, such as Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and all that. Search my name. You'll find my books. Check them out. They're, uh, they're, they're well, they're books. You can read them. <laughs> so, uh, and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash official. And I think with that, we will wrap things up for today's show. So as always, we thank you for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. And Phil, are you excited to travel to some uh, perhaps dark and mysterious places tonight with our movie endings? By the... Oh, crap. What's the... What's... <laughs> I the quote ready. What's the... By Grab Thor's yeah, hammer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, it dawns on young 1960s Shatter. 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 I like that. Yeah, it's like a superhero name. Shatter. Phil can hear me every week, so you should be able to. Yeah. Because you're young. Your hearing should be better than his. So. <laughs> I, I have quite good hearing, actually. I Thank know. You very actually, much. I have bad hearing. So, but that's not what, was, what was that? Oh, yeah. and I know bad jokes as well. I, I see how it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. I see how it's going to be, Phil. It's so wrong seeing a, seeing a five-year-old in Deadpool. It's completely irresponsible and unnecessary of parents to do. But also, kids that age are just going to have no concept of breaking the fourth wall, so they're just not going to appreciate it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love it. You know, every time I go to a, a movie or I think back on a movie from 10 or 12 years ago, I can pretty much remember where I saw it and something that happened surrounding every movie that I went to. Yeah, that'll change as you get older, but for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just enjoy for, it while you can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, I still need children. We Hang on, I can't talk. All right, so 1962, an interesting film. Uh, an interesting <laughs> well, mine is one that's been on your wrist. It is Lawrence. Did I say wrist then? No. You did say wrist. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say that I've never had Lawrence of Arabia on my wrist. Which you know, and you know what's funny about To Kill a Mockingbird was I, I've, I've never read the novel. I will, I will culp to culp. Is that a word? Culpable. 
I will cope to, cop cope. to that. I'll cop cope. to that. Okay. Yeah. yeah something that, like yeah. that. I'll I'll cop to it too. I'm not afraid. I'm a rebel. <laughs> I'll do whatever I damn well please. Hey. If I want to cop to a movie, cope cope away. I'll cop. That's right. I will. All right. That's, that's no idea some, what I'm even talking let's about. Let's get anymore. some cult badges made. 